Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the book of Ezra. We'll be in Ezra chapter 1 this Lord's Day. Now, one thing you will notice right away about this book is that it is not the letter of James. <laughs> I think that's obvious enough, but that's important for me to say to you right away and right now at the beginning, because over the course of the last months, maybe you've been here, maybe you haven't, but what we have done is we have walked through the letter of James and we have been through a whirlwind of commands and very direct and very practical exhortations. Well, the book of Ezra it does have a lot of encouragements, exhortations, and so on. It is not that. It is not the letter of James. And so we come to this book this morning, and I'm forewarning you, you'll need to adjust yourself in view of having just walked through the letter of James. And so this is my attempt to help you do that because it is not the letter of James. It's a book about rebuilding the temple, but it's more than that as well. It's about wholeheartedly taking up God's word. It's about wholeheartedly worshiping God. It's about repentance. And it's about covenant renewal. And so it's not, I'm saying it again, it is not the letter of James. But it is the book of Ezra. And it is the word of God. And so let me urge you this morning, in view of that, which we so often do not hear from the Old Testament, that you would receive it as that, the word of God this morning. And as God's word, it begins right off with God's work. So to see this, let's read here, beginning with verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1. May the Lord who inspired his word bless the reading and receiving of his word as well. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to build, rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, as you hear all of that, in these opening words of the book, of Ezra, it's only right for you and right for all of us to ask the question you probably are already asking, and it is this, what in the world is going on here? As in, where are we? And so already at this point, me just reading these opening words of Ezra, you might be feeling like we're not in Kansas anymore, and you would be right. If you were dropped right into the thick of all that's happening in these verses, literally in that place and time as all this is going on, you would be disoriented in every way because you and I are thousands of years detached from what we are reading here in these verses. So what does that mean? Well, it means we need to do some work this morning. (laughs) We need to spend some time considering what indeed is going on in the book of Ezra. Because by default, you're not going to necessarily just know. So how did we get here? Or better yet, how did the people of Israel get to this point? Well, let's just say... The people of Israel had fallen on hard times. (laughs) And by hard times, I mean they brought all this on themselves. Judgment had come, and hear me well here, judgment had come righteously and rightly from the hand of the living God. Now people will, you know, argue with that. They will say, well, how could a God do such things? Well, let's make it clear right now that he did all of this in his perfect goodness 
His perfect righteousness and His perfect judgments. Infinitely wise and right is what He did. So let's make that clear right now. He did no wrong whatsoever. So how did this happen? We're following King Solomon. So you may or may be don't know King Solomon. King Solomon was son of David, the great King David. Well, following King Solomon and his reign over the people of Israel, the kingdom was what? It was divided. And it was divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. However, as it got divided, what did the people do as they kind of always do, and if you're like, well, that's bad for them. No, no, they are us. (laughs) That means, like, what they're doing is what you do, and what we do, what we all do. And so what did they do? Well, the people rebelled. There were evil kings and the kings, as they were called to do in Deuteronomy 17, they did not do. They did not lead the people of God in the word of God. They did not follow God and his word and what he's called them to do as kings. And so these evil kings, they reigned and led the people of God in false worship of all variety of gods. And so what did they do? They broke God's covenant. And while all this is going on, all the while, here are the prophets preaching the word of God prophesying again and again to the people of Israel and of Judah, saying, you need to repent. Do you not see that you're breaking God's covenant? You're forsaking the God who made you. What are you doing? Going to these broken cisterns. They don't have any water in them, and yet you're trying to drink from nothingness. And so they heard all that. This prophesying. And what did Israel do? Well, again and again, what they did is they refused to listen. And let me just warn you right there. Don't you refuse to listen to God this morning. You'll be tempted to. It's probably, maybe even in your heart right now. Anger, rebellion, no one is going to tell me what I can do or not do. Well, you'll be joining right along with Israel, who refused to listen to God. And so after many years, God was immensely patient and gracious and waiting and pleading with them, and they refused to listen. And so God's judgment came just as he said it would. So Israel fell to Assyria. And the Assyrian Empire, this massive empire, if you think that you know these nations and lands that we are living in today are going to last forever, learn the lessons from history, well, guess what? Assyria then fell also, and they fell to the Babylonian Empire. And then more than 100 years after Israel, northern kingdom, fell, Judah, southern kingdom, fell to Babylon and 
Woe is us, the temple of God was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed. Just as God said it would happen. Then, in 539 B.C., all these things happened in history, by the way. Babylon also fell. And it fell to the empire that we see here in the opening chapter of Ezra, to the Persian Empire. Kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, almost like it just happens all the time. And now the people of God were scattered among the nations in exile, judged by God for their sin, for their rebellion, and for breaking God's covenant. And you could just weep over that right there. You could weep over your own life, how you also have broken every single thing that God has said. You weep for them, weep for yourself. And so at this point, you can imagine how they felt, what they were likely thinking as they're in exile. Uncertainty abounds. Your sin is weighing heavy on you like we brought ourselves here. We did this. And the reality of God's righteous judgment is great. And so at this point in Ezra, Babylon has just been Conquered, and the people of God are now living under this new empire, the empire of Persia. In this, as we see all this, as they're living in that, they're in exile. And by the way, you're in exile too if you're a believer. You're waiting for the fullness of God's kingdom to come. Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. So you're waiting also. So in All that, we ask, where is hope in the midst of all of that? Well, hope, even through and in all of that, it has not moved and it has not changed for even a moment what it was before. And what is that hope? Hope is only found in God. And so what then is needed? We need God to do something. And that is what he does. He acts. And in acting in Ezra 1, he fulfills his word. And so this is where Ezra begins. It begins right where Second Chronicles ends. And if you're not familiar with that, just turn your Bible one page over and you're right there in Second Chronicles. And you can see for yourself, it is exactly what we see here in Ezra. From verses 1 through 3, they are exactly what we read in the last words of Second Chronicles. And so bursting forth in the midst of their exile is this proclamation where we see God fulfills His word through a godly king, through a foreign king. 
so many applications to that for us. I mean, are we, like in our world, how many foreign kings are we living under? Kings are we living under? And so we need to ask, doing our good work, because we have no idea who this guy is, at least being a thousand years detached from him, maybe you do, well, good for you. But let's ask, who is this king? Cyrus. Well, after his grandfather ordered him to be put to death, Cyrus, he eluded the grasp of his grandfather and was raised by a shepherd. And once he grew up, what did he do? (laughs) He overthrew his grandfather (laughs) and his father. Oh, yeah, you're going to try to kill me, are you? (laughs) You got another thing coming. And so Cyrus was made king of Medea. And at that point, the Medo-Persian Empire was formed with Cyrus as its king. And so he went out and he went on conquering land after land after land until he came face to face with who? You've been listening well. The Babylonian Empire. And he conquered them as well. And so it is then bringing us right up to these words in verse 2. That he says, the Lord, Cyrus says this, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he was not kidding. (laughs) The Persian Empire was one of the largest empires in all of history. Now, as you read these words, though, and these words of Cyrus, don't think, I mean, it could mean that, but probably does not mean that. He became a believer. In fact, I don't think this is what it means at all. This is why it's important for us to know all the stuff I'm sharing with you right now. (laughs) What was his practice as he would go and conquer all these kingdoms? Well, he was actually a very kind of empathetic king or whatever you may want to call that. But he would go and he would use the names of the gods of the lands that he conquered. And he he would even go and worship the gods of the lands that he conquered to help those people who are living under his empire kind of lean in to his being king. And so that's exactly what we see here in his proclamation. And that is what he's doing. Yet, even in knowing that, we know better, don't we? (laughs) As in whether Cyrus himself actually thought so or not, It was indeed the God of the heavens and the earth who was behind all of this. The reason he is king is because 150 years before with Isaiah, he said it would be so. God did. So in that way, we see that all of this was God fulfilling his word in accord 
with his prophets. And this is exactly what it says in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Now, what word was that? Well, the very word that Francie read a moment ago from Jeremiah chapter 29. God promised that he would bring the people of Judah up out of exile. And my friends, what we need to see here right now is that God never fails to keep his promises. Never. He has never failed. While we might forget all sorts of things, I mean, even this week, I have forgotten so many things, and I'm sure you also. Well, God never does. Even down to the very person that He would do it through. And so it was that through the prophet of Isaiah, God said in Isaiah 44, hundreds of years before, a hundred years before he ever came, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And Isaiah 45, 13, and I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And that is exactly what God did. He stirred him up. He moved him even as it says in Proverbs 21, 1, which we need not have any problem with whatsoever, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so God uses this foreign king to do his bidding. And do you not think that maybe, just maybe, he's doing the same thing today? And so God fulfilled his word and fulfilled his word also through Cyrus's proclamation. Through Cyrus's proclamation. Now in this proclamation, Cyrus sets before the people the charge to go and rebuild the house of the Lord. What is that? That's the temple. And to release them from exile. And so one after another, we see God is bringing about his word. And I hope you see that very clearly this morning. And though this wasn't done in our day, like these events in Ezra, it is for you and it is for me in our day. Right now that we would take hold of these pillars and see God's rock solid faithfulness what he says he will do 
And so as we see all this, as we see these pillars of God's faithfulness from Ezra's day, in the midst of our day, and I'm asking you this, will you believe God's word also? Friends, our position is not a hopeless position. And our demeanor is not to be a hopeless demeanor. I mean, all around me, I hear of fears of this and fears of that. Fears within the church and fears outside the church. Yet, friends... We have no small word concerning those who are part of Christ's kingdom. Have you not heard? We have, as Hebrews says, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot. And let me ask you, do you believe that this morning? That, in Hebrews, is the sure word of the living God right now. May the Lord help us in these things. How we so anchor ourselves to all sorts of other things. We'll pour ourselves out over all variety of other words. But what about God's word? Do you? And will you believe Him? If you are in Christ this morning, though you are an exile in this world, you are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No matter what is going on in this world. No matter what's going on in your family. No matter how hard it gets with your heart, with your struggle with sin, you are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And why is that? Well, it's not because of you. It's not because of us. It's because of God. It's because of His faithfulness. It's because of Christ and His faithfulness, even unto death. That is why it is unshakable. Not because of you. Because it's all banking on God from first to last. It's banking on the word made flesh and who has dwelt among us and has come to make us part of that kingdom that will never, ever be shaken. So see this this morning. See God's rock-solid faithfulness here, but also see God moves his people to do his work. So after Cyrus's proclamation, the people of Judah and Benjamin, they took up the charge. But as we see that, we need to see why they took 
up the charge. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So we need to see who is behind this as well. God stirred up the king and God stirred up the people also. Now you might see that and say to yourself, well, it sure seems like they have a lot to do. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is going to be hard, what they're getting ready to embark upon. I mean, it doesn't look like this is going to be easy. It will require much of them. It will require much of their families. It will require that they arise and they do hard things, even very hard things. They'll likely face opposition and even more. Well, if you're saying that, you're right. That's all true, as we'll see as we continue on through the book of Ezra. But see the pivotal difference. It's not them, ultimately. It's God. God moves his people to do his work. So let me just ask you. Ask you as we look on at the world. At a world in need. And we have gospel to proclaim. We have disciples to make. Could it be that the Lord is doing this today? Or could it even be that right now the Lord is doing that in you? That even now he is stirring you up. Yes, it won't be easy. It will require much of you. It will require much of your family. Even that you would arise and do hard things. Even very hard things. You will face opposition. Jesus promised that. But see the pivotal difference. It's God. And God moves his people to do his work. See how he stirs them up and how they then arise and get to the work of the Lord. So friends, let me ask us, where is that in you? Where is the ardor? Where are those who would rise up and do the work of the Lord? They would count their lives as cheap and the gospel as priceless. Where are those who would remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You. Not Someone else, you. In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. 
and to the ends of the earth. Well, could it be that God is stirring us up? That he's stirring you up and not to an action, in action anymore, because that has been the status quo of the Christian church for far too long. Not to inaction, but to action. Friends, may we pray for this. Pray for your brother or sister next to you. Pray for me. Pray for God to stir us up that God would move his people to do his work. Pray for the lost all around us that will forever be separated from God outside of you going to them. And pray for God to do what he alone can do. And pray all that. Why? Not because you can do it. You're not praying for that, right? You're not praying because you're the marvelous gospel witness that we've been looking for for the last, since Paul, right? I mean, is that, is that what it is? No. We pray because he can do it and does do it. He's why they arise and get to the work. Now, this isn't let go and let God, I'll let you look into that. That's a false theology. Like, how could that be? Well, you can talk to me later and I'll talk to you about it. So it's not that. It's see what God does and can do and will do. So ponder that all that God can and will do, and ask yourself, will you arise and do the work of the Lord? God help us if we go on and all that there is in us is dryness and apathy and complacency and hard hearts and dry death. Bones. And if that is the case, which I would well argue that is where many churches are right now, may it be our fervent prayer, Lord, make these dry, dead bones live. Stir us up, O God, and never cease doing the stirring with all the hardships, with all the opposition we're going to face, and with all the glorious disciples that we will make for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so God fulfills His word. He moves His people to do His work. And God provides for His work and will to be done. Now, at this point, you're likely wondering about what is all of this about. And why? by that, I mean 
this talk about silver and gold and goods and beasts and these free will offerings being given in verses 4 and 6 and 7 through 11. So what's going on with all those things? Well, Cyrus, he gives the people of Judah and Benjamin the spoils of what was taken by Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar from the house of the Lord, from the temple. And we're told that Mithridath counted them out to Sheth's Bazaar. So what is all that about? Is it just details? Well, it is that. (laughs) But it's more than that. It's signaling that God is bringing about something new. He's bringing about another exodus. It's recalling what God did. And we see it everywhere in these verses. We see a king whose spirit was stirred and whose heart was not what? Hardened. We see it in that. We see it in all this spoil going right to the people of Judah and Benjamin. And we see it in Exodus, these words coming out here in Exodus 3, 21 through 22, where it says, God says, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians." And so it says in verse 4, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place. That in the Hebrew is basically Gentiles. Calling forth the words of Exodus. And then it says in verse 11, all these did Shashbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. It is a reversal of their exile. It's saying God is once again delivering his people and not just that, but he's providing for what he's delivering them to do. Now prior to all of that, if you're right in the thick of all this in Exodus before I mean in Ezra right before Ezra before this happens, What might you be thinking? Well, this is impossible. I mean, there's no temple. There's not going to be any temple anytime soon. There's no hope of going home. We're all in the thick of this, in the thick of exile. We're not going anywhere. And that's part of the point. This isn't something that they could have done just like in Exodus. God is the one who does it. He stirred the king. He stirred the people such that what seems impossible is not only possible 
But God does it. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So in our day, will you trust God to do what you cannot do? Will you trust Him to provide what you don't have to do the work that He alone can do? You know, I keep getting the sense from people, the sense that in our day it all just seems, like right now, it just seems very, very hopeless. It all just seems impossible. I mean, how will the church survive this? I mean, how will the gospel go out in our day? I mean, it just seems like everything's gone awry. And I don't know if there's any way out of this mess. Well, what should we say to all of that? We're right where we need to be. Now, perhaps having seen that, if you're saying it's all hopeless, if you're seeing that this is something that we cannot do, perhaps now you're throwing off all dependence on yourself. What might that mean? Now is the time for God to do his work. then it is that God so often says, as we cast off all sufficiency of ourselves, I cannot preach this, I cannot do this, I can't labor in this way, I can't, my family can't do this, I can't do this, this church can't do this, then it is that God says, now is the time. They have ceased going about relying on themselves and living by their own strength. They're no longer looking to their own hands. Now I will do my work for my glory and I will get all the glory just as they will love for it to be. Friends, God will provide for his work. He can do it. So have you, have you ceased looking to yourself And are you finally looking to him? Will you cease looking to yourself and look to Christ? In your home, in your marriage, in your struggles with sin, in yourself, in this church, in view of the lost world around us, Go ahead, cast up your hands. Have you finally come to the end of yourself? And if you have, now we're right where we need to be looking only to God, banking only on Christ, trusting wholly in his word. Lose your life. 
that you may find it. So be stirred, not shaken this morning, and consider his great faithfulness. Trust him, believe his word, and be moved, saints, and get to work. Let's pray. Father, we plead with you. I do. We do. Stir us. Move us. May you get and work in us in such a way that these dry bones, this complacency, this apathetic heart would be no more and we would simply say, Lord, move us May these dry bones live. May you do your work regardless of the cost, regardless of the opposition. We trust you. We trust your word. We know that you can do it. We throw up our hands and say, yes, all this is hopeless. And that is right. But hope is never empty when it is in you. And so we set our hope on you this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.